So tonight I'm going to continue the exploration of the aggregates or fuel heaps. Fuel, the heaps of fuel for our clinging. And do so mostly by talking about letting go, actually. Not self. And I'll touch into the final fuel heap or aggregate of consciousness. I want to start off by elaborating a little bit on this extended metaphor that the Buddha used of fire and extinguishment in some of his core teachings, especially um, a group of his first teachings. So I I do believe I touched on this possibly in the first talk that I gave on an overview of the aggregates or these fuel heaps. I just want to re-emphasize it and kind of elaborate a little bit. So, commonly translated, in my view, horribly and dully as the aggregates, the five aggregates of clinging are these aspects of our experience Altogether, they make up all of our conditioned experience. And in their original meaning, they're like heaps or bundles, but in the colloquial sense of the Buddhist time, these would be understood to kind of as a reference to heaps or bundles of wood for as fuel for fire. Right? So, like fire clings to wood, we cling to the aggregates. We cling to form. We cling to Vedana, perception, to Sankara, our thoughts and emotions, and to consciousness, taking them to be a self when they're not, they don't have the, they don't have the qualities that make them fit to be regarded as ourselves. When we know them deeply, we can only see them as actually not self. What is that fire, that clinging, that, that feeds, that, that's the force behind our clinging to the fuel heaps of the aggregates? The fire is greed, hatred, and delusion. Grasping hatred and delusion. So there's been a morphing of the translation of greed, hatred, and delusion over the years in uh, in the English language, it's been commonly translated as the three poisons. They're actually in the suttas, the three fires. That's the words. The three fires of greed, hatred, and delusion. So this is an integral part of this metaphor, of the way that we relate to the aggregates. They are the fuel, the fires, greed, hatred, and delusion. We cling to the fuel. We can't cling to the fuel like fire clings to wood. And what is Nibbana? Nibbana means extinguishment, like a flame. Goes out. Cooling. It's cooling. So, Nibbana, a word for extinguishment, like a flame, or cooling, even a colloquial term at the time of the Buddha, like rice cools. So very words that were very relatable at that time. And I think once they're put into their metaphorical context, a bit more relatable for us too. 
So that fire of greed, hatred, and delusion goes out. And the clinging to wood ends. The clinging to the fuel heaps of the aggregates. So I think when we get in touch with this extended metaphor um, around fuel and extinguishment, we also can touch into, I think part of the Buddha's message here was this is all really natural. This is a part of nature. It's nature, a natural process that we tend to cling. But so too is extinguishment natural. The process of cooling, the process of letting go of the clinging. So the whole, so mindfulness, that process, the Noble Eightfold Path, the process that we engage in, in this practice, is a natural process, a natural unfolding. Mindfulness is accessible to us. Each factor of the Noble Eightfold Path, these are very accessible ways of being in the world ways of orienting our minds, ways of orienting our action. It's all taking place at a natural level that's accessible. Just as we can see that fire extinguishes, it ends, so too can the fires of greed, hatred, and delusion that burn in our hearts. It's just nature. I think that can help support the disidentification with the practice, with our experience, with the aggregates, to see that. So we naturally, in a natural process, put into place the conditions for understanding the truth, the way things are, the truth of the way we cling and the way we can let go. And we see this, we've seen it in our own practice. It can... You know, the the epiphanies we have, the insights we have, the deeper understandings, sometimes small, but they seem quite large when we can touch into the possibility for less reactivity, just as one example, being more equanimous, seeing change more closely, the disappearance of a thought or a sensation. And it brings awe This is the natural part of the process as well. If it wasn't natural, I think a lot of us probably wouldn't end up in a place like this. You know, many people come to this practice, the initial thing is just, they're just looking for some stress relief. (laughs) And uh, not really thinking they might be going off on any kind of long retreats. But people come somehow naturally end up rearranging their lives in certain ways. So it shows that we've entered into a certain stream, a certain way of being in the world, a different relationship to our experience, and it's naturally grown within us and through our expression in the world and our choices. So our aim is to let go of clinging to the aggregates. There's absolutely no way to force this. This is just practicing the Noble Eightfold Path. 
It happens as a purification process. We have to see the clinging. We have to see the nature of the things to which we cling. We have to see that they're not worth clinging to. That clinging brings suffering. So we have to do this moment by moment. Opening to the truth. Opening to the possibility things aren't exactly as we would habitually take them to be. So whether we're practicing samatha or vipassana, it's all about letting go of this clinging, letting go. And I'll get into kind of the different, some of the different nuances or ways that letting go might manifest in those two kind of streams of practice of samatha or vipassana. But I just want to touch into a little bit more about this letting go and not self actually. So we're letting go of seeing the aggregates of self. We're letting go and seeing them as not self. As Walpola Rahula said in this very classical book, What the Buddha Taught, mere suffering exists, but no sufferer is found. The deeds are, but no doer is found. This not-self-truth is not a theoretical thing. It's actually what we're practicing. We really look at what we're doing with mindfulness. We're actually taking the stance of not-self. So we're noticing what's happening in our experience and letting go of trying to hold on, letting go of trying to push away, and just noticing it. Noticing it for what it is, without elaboration, without proliferation, and just noticing it as it passes through. The mere fact that we can notice our experience in this way, not identifying it with it, not holding on, it points to the truth that it's not self. Otherwise, how could we do this? How could we? How could we have this stance of noticing it pass through if it was self? So knowing this can help kind of infuse our mindfulness practice. We can reflect and reflect on that and it can support kind of seed of wisdom in the practice. So just a little piece of a quote that I also gave earlier on in one of my pre- the previous aggregates talks about letting go. Letting go doesn't mean that we don't take on responsibility or practices. We let go within those practices. So this mindfulness is this practice of letting go. It means we need to let go of any outcome orientation, moment to moment any outcome orientation. And it actually means, you can check this out for yourself, but I think really it means we have to really fully let go of a lot of our societal conditioning around what it is to be a human being and what the nature of the truth is. For example, 
that you you are measurable. I think I think I can speak for I think pretty much everybody has been taught in some way they are measurable. And it's appropriate for you or others to measure you. Things like that, basic things like that, we need to let go. So let go of outcome orientation and let go of societal standards and views that are based in untruths. So the thing about outcome orientation and letting go of it is it's easy to say, and we fall back into it real easily. Anytime there's an outcome orientation, so trying to get somewhere, or trying to get rid of something, there are two things in the mind. Wanting an idea and an idea of the self to get from here to there. Both of these are based in unwise view. <laughs> there's a hindrance in the mind. Any time there's that, there's a lot of those moments, let's face it. There's a lot of those moments of wanting. I want to get somewhere. I want to get something out of this. God, I hope I went on this month and it wasn't just for nothing and I'm going to go back and I'm, you know, might find that I didn't get what I wanted on this retreat. So it's to be known as a hindrance when those things are there, folded into the practice, either desire or grasping, however, you, whatever resonates with you as a way to practice with it. But I think a lot of us are familiar with practicing, with wanting, knowing greed is in the mind. But notice that second part, that idea of the self that has the opportunity to get from here to there, So it can be helpful, actually, to practice with noticing this. You know, that one runs under the radar a lot of the time. We're somebody getting from one place to the next. So it can be helpful at times to touch into this and just notice this. Notice the arising of the I, the I that needs to get somewhere the eye that wants to get rid of something. This is the craving of for becoming in action. It's bhava. And it involves a contraction of the heart, sometimes subtle, sometimes strong. And the thing is, I think that even though it ru- runs in the background and we take it for granted a lot, there is a part of us that sees that there's a contraction there. There's a clenching, gripping in the heart. When we're contracted around our experience, the fuel heaps for our clinging, taking them to be an eye. And I think, you know, that's why, for me, this poem, this is my favorite Dharma poem I want to share, why it's moving for me is that sense of that... Uh, core clinging. So this is a poem attributed to the abbess of Hakujuan, uh, Taijutsu in the 18th century in Japan, 
comes from the book Women, in the Way, Women of the Way by Sally Teasdale. It's about Taijutsu. It's kind of about her awakening. And this is what it said about her awakening. She saw that a rising phenomena arose, abided, and passed away. She saw that the knowing of this arose, abided, and passed away. Then she knew that there was nothing more than this, no ground, nothing to lean on stronger than the cane she held, nothing to lean upon at all and no one leaning. And she opened the clenched fist in her mind and let go and fell into the midst of everything. She saw that a rising phenomena arose, abided, and passed away. She saw that the knowing of this arose, abided, and passed away. Then she knew that there was nothing more than this, no ground, nothing to lean on stronger than the cane she held, nothing to lean upon at all, and no one leaning, and she opened the clenched fist in her mind and let go and fell into the midst of everything. So this seeing into the fact that she also saw that the knowing of this arose, abided, and passed away is referring to this aggregate or fuel heap of consciousness also being impermanent, which I'll talk about a little bit later. But just to elaborate a little on this way in which we can actually practice with the arising of the I. You know, I've found that if we sometimes actually bring in a conscious a conscious reminder, especially when we really see ourselves caught up in wanting to get something. For me, it's been an important practice, and it's an important practice for a long time to actually notice that and bring in a wiser view reflection. This cannot be true because there's a solid self here. And there's some knowing that this clenching, this grasping, this contraction doesn't reflect the true experience, the true um, experience of a human being. There's this is actually a process. So it's possible to bring that in as a wisdom reflection at times, when there's a real sense of being caught in something can you actually kind of take a step back and bring in this, a reminder, oh, there's, there's a really solid sense of self here. There must be some delusion. Can I just let go a little bit and look up and see the process that's going on in the heart and the mind, in the body? So as we practice, because you know, trying to get somewhere uh, and seeing ourselves as trying to get somewhere has this seed of delusion in it. We have to practice with a kind of a paradox that there is a path and that there is no path. So at one point in my practice, I was excited about it, something, and I guess, you know, I was caught up in that. I went to talk to my teacher, Howie Cohn, And he just looked at me and he said, now there is no path. So I needed to be 
corrected. I was going somewhere. And of course, we're beings of some kind on, and it's important not to be complacent. We are practicing. These mind-body processes are practicing. But we can enter into a space of some greater freedom and we can hold, at least at the same time, some knowing of there's actually no path also. Can we feel a little bit of the relaxation that might come from that? So, there are these ways of seeing not-self in our experience. We can see not-self through seeing impermanence. It's all a flow, so it's all a flow of change. So how could it be solid? How could it be a self? It's insubstantial as a result. It's conditioned... Everything is arising in a web of conditions. One thing leading to the other, to the other, to the other. Nothing independent. There's nothing independent to be found, independent of conditions. Not like a a self. And it's not in our control. It's not governable. And one way we can notice this that I actually find kind of fun in the practice and I'll be honest, I find, find it fun in hearing about other people's practice. It's to see that the practice is doing itself. It's pretty cool. It's pretty fascinating. You're not actually doing it. I'm not actually doing it. We're not actually doing it. And this becomes apparent in pretty interesting ways. So, you know, there are a lot of reports. Oh, you know, there was this time period where I had a few sits where my mind was just really calm and steady and easy with the breath. And there was this stillness and this quiet and this peace. And then suddenly I had this, there was this hindrance attack. And, oh, I struggled against it. And then, you know, I let go into mindfulness again. And I was able to see, I mean, this is just... This, is, this could have been my report many times. This is it. And then, okay, then I let go. I was able to be mindful and I noticed, wow, I don't have to hold on. Let go. And then I returned and I could practice a little more and it deepened a little bit more and the mind got still again. The mind was able to be mindful again. Do you think you're doing this? Well, you're certainly not the only one. <laughs> But the thing is that um, as Joseph Goldstein once said to me in a practice meeting, it's all a passing show. And when he said that, you know, I was having all kinds of like, oh, well, one minute it's calm and still and the next minute there's this fear and there's this rage and then it's really neutral and then there's this weird energy and... (laughs) And he's like, it's all a passing show. And that, you know, what that means, we're being shown something. 
We're being shown something. We're being shown that it's all impermanent. We're being shown that it's all conditioned. Being shown these things. We're being shown that if you hold on to a moment of oh so peaceful stillness, you actually will suffer because that too, no matter how sublime, wholesome, that too is conditioned. And is therefore the nature of it is to go like this. Oh my gosh, we come to this practice and oh we want stillness, peace, quiet. And then we touch into it. being shown that and it goes and flows and ebbs and changes and so the practice has an intelligence and it's there's a way in which through the course of say a retreat period like the ones that you all are doing the factors of mind get stronger that allow us to hold the seeing of that change more strongly. That's part of the building of what's often translated as concentration, samadhi, whether it's momentary concentration in vipassana or it's concentration in samatha, is to stabilize the heart-mind so that it can see these truths of change and not self and conditionality. And so when the, the factors, all the factors of mind, the wholesome factors we talk about, they come together, then we're able to see more. So we're the mind is being shown more of that truth. And so sometimes we face those difficulties, the real, um, our karmic knots come up when, you know, our karmic knots, our bundles of difficult conditioning come up when we're able to see it because the factors of mind have been built sufficiently to support the seeing of that. Same with the insights. So we're not actually doing this feels so personal, a hindrance attack. And yet, there's a logic and an intelligence behind the practice. That's not self, that we're not in control of. And that's really beautifully natural. So there's that letting go that happens in that all a passing show kind of a way in Vipassana practice. And we have to let go of outcome orientation to experience that. Another way that that kind of letting go of outcome orientation lands for me is in another piece of advice or actually something that a teacher of mine shares, and she shares it a lot, Kamala Masters, in public talks that she's given. But just at one point, she was told by her teacher in a point in time where you know, she wanted to get somewhere. Munindraji, her teacher, said, when the fruit is ripe, it will fall from the tree. And in learning these orientations to the practice, we're also learning the truth. We're also learning that it's the flow of a practice. It's happening. It's not self. It's natural. We need to just patiently, with gentle perseverance, see the conditions and support the conditions coming into place 
so that the power of the practice, the mindfulness, can flow. In samatha practice, with letting go, we are letting go of control. We are letting go of the will. We are letting go of the hindrances, simply returning to here, now, one object. Maybe it's metta, maybe it's the breath. And it's a profound letting go, deep, into that stillness of mind that can hold knowing the truth more and more. So Ajahn Brahm, I love his descriptions of samatha practice. And he describes the letting go sort of in this way. He translates the word samadhi as which is often translated as concentration, he translates it as stillness and points to that stillness he describes as the core of the samatha practice. He says, stillness means lack of movement. Since will causes the mind to move, to experience stillness, one must remove all will, all doing, all control, If you grasp a leaf on a tree and try your hardest to hold it still, no matter how hard you try, you will never succeed. There will always be some vibration caused by slight tremors in your muscles. However, you don't touch the leaf and just protect it from the breeze, then the leaf comes to a natural state of stillness. If you don't touch the leaf and just protect it from the breeze, then the leaf comes to a natural state of stillness. In exactly the same way, you cannot achieve stillness by holding the mind in the grip of the will. But if you remove the cause of movement in the mind, the will, the mind soon becomes still. Thus, one cannot will the mind to be still. The way into stillness is through the piti sukha, the joy and happiness born of letting go. So when we start to practice with one object, we are gripping on like nobody's business. Every single one of us, oh my gosh, I'm supposed to be mindful of the breath for how long? More than a millisecond? This is going to take a whole lot of grasping, a whole lot of will. But the journey, the practice, the path is one of actually letting go of that very thing we think we need to, need to really force to be there for that. And do you really think you're doing that? The mind just shows you that there's just this suffering and this holding on. And over time, the mind wants to have a peaceful relationship (laughs) with the experience. It starts to see the will is holding on. And let's go. So in this process of practice, we need to let go even of our insights. We need to just deeply keep on letting go. This can be a hard one. Because it's so thrilling and awesome to begin to see the truth and start to feel a freedom that we haven't felt before. 
you know, just like those moments we see Yeah, when we see that mindfulness just arises on its own, for example, or any other mind state just arises on its own, maybe one that's really been bedeviling us, maybe self-criticism, and then we actually just see, wait a minute, where did that come from? And there's a seeing too, that came unbidden and unjustified, <laughs> And there's a feeling that one you can let go. But just like, you know, if we're in college or in high school and we party too much, <laughs> we stop to party too much. If we stop to party too much um, in excitement and reflection and thinking about and thinking we've gotten somewhere when there's an insight, we miss the next moment that we can just notice be there with mindfulness for and keep the process of deepening and understanding growing. So we have to have beginner's mind. It's the most fruitful kind of mind to have to keep going in our deepening of our understanding. So classic from Shunru Suzuki from Beginner's Mind, Zen Mind, I think is the book. If your mind is empty, it is always ready for anything. It is open to everything. In the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities, but in the expert's mind, there are few. I also think that with the beginner's mind, our experience is different than if with the expert's mind. With the beginner's mind, experience is like an open book our experience, what we can learn from it. It's like an open book. In the expert's mind, our experience is like a closed book. There's no more. Nothing to be able to be seen. It's shut for us. So there's a joy and an interest that's there when we have beginner's mind. And so we can check that out and nurture the joy, the joy of curiosity, the joy of interest, the joy of discovery. Rather than trying to get somewhere, nurture that joy of just what might be, what might be known, what might the heart open to. So I want to return a little bit to letting go of our conditioned ideas about ourselves that we've got from, many of us have from society. For example, things like we're measurable. It's appropriate to measure ourselves. It's appropriate to measure others. If we can deeply let this go, it can be rather than a fuel for clinging, a fuel for letting go. Even an idea of a good person or a bad person, because there's a person there. Can we, can we envision that? 
So many people have patterns of some level of self-criticism, even if it's subtle, some very strong. I certainly practice with this a lot, self-judgment, self-hatred, self-criticism. And one of the things that I remember reading many years ago that actually really helped me, really kind of shook me. And I took it on board and it really helped was a quote by Pema Chodron, which I think people find kind of challenging. And it's very brief. She said, and I read in one of her books, the problem is that the desire to change is fundamentally a form of aggression toward yourself. The problem is that the desire to change is fundamentally a form of aggression towards yourself. And this may be hard to take on board. Um, Because there's a very strong identification for many that you need to do something about this being. (laughs) And if we let go of a desire to change and we just become complacent and not do anything. I checked it out in my own experience and it was incredibly freeing. And it didn't make me sit on my hands. Quite the opposite. It fueled the practice. It energized my life to not think of myself as someone that needed to be changed and to feel into the aggression, the like subtle aggression that might be there towards the this being and believing, needing to change. So maybe just being willing to entertain the idea of letting go of any kind of sense of needing to eradicate something about yourself or measure yourself, if this is any of your habit of mind that you need to practice with, could be fruitful. It really, that approach that any kind of feeling that you need to change yourself is self-aggression dovetails with just the truth that even these defilements, the greed, hatred, the delusion are not personal. I remember being hearing Sayada Upandita at Pandita Rama say many years after that, many years after just reading that quote from Pema Chodron, he just said, it's important to remember the defilements are not you. Just that simple. But hearing it from someone so, you know, he's renowned for the intensity of his sila, I mean, such a pure being in the sense of really oriented constantly with his whole life dedicated to non-harm, renunciation, and sharing the teachings out of compassion into his 90s. The defilements are not you. It's important to remember. It's a very stern teacher, but there was the compassion, the greed, hatred, and illusion that's not you. So it's not our job in the practice to sit in blame. As Ajahn Brahm says, your job is to be free, 
not to carry around the so-called attainments or failures of the past. So our job is to be free. And can we touch into a really, really deep and profound self-acceptance that's ironically a real fuel for being able to let go and then see, oh, not self. Like a really, really deep, beyond just letting go of self-criticism, can we totally accept this being? Nobody has a right to measure. That's not what it's about. Got to get a little audacious for that. And that it is about being a bit audacious. And that's why I say it's kind of against the stream of a lot of our societal conditioning. Nobody has a right to measure this being. It's just between us and our practice and our own commitment to ourselves and the unfolding that we're engaged in. So at a certain point, you know, we might have to get serious about this practice and say, actually... Although we're not into outcome orientation, freedom is possible. And at one point, one of my teachers, again, Kamala Masters, suggested to me that I take some resolves about, oh, and it ended up, the resolve was, no other refuge do I seek. The Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha is my refuge true. By the speaking of this truth, may peaceful victory be mine. May peaceful victory be mine? It's like, come on. I'm just little old Tara Malay from Dyersville, Iowa. May peaceful victory be mine. You gotta be, who are you kidding? <laughs> so like, not really, not really matching my identity, right? Okay, so maybe that's an identity that needs to be let go of. Get a little audacious. All right, it's daunting, but it's pointing to like we really need to enter into a deep okayness with what's here. That's really may require some shedding of a lot of ideas about um, how we relate to ourselves, trying to make ourselves be something or do something or make ourselves into something. So I want to say a little bit here about the fuel heap of consciousness, the aggregate of consciousness, because I'm coming to the end here of the aggregates. mentioned it earlier in the poem about Taijutsu, and it's a really um, helpful one to look at in the context of talking about the deepest letting go, and not self, The aggregates, the fuel heaps, are listed in a way that, you know, I think it's purposeful, but they're listed in a way that they go from the grossest to the most subtle. It's really easy for us to connect with, okay, there's form, there's the body, there's color, there's matter in our life. Vedna, pleasant, unpleasant, or neither. Well, we feel that, pleasant, unpleasant, 
pretty strong. Perception, we're getting a little bit more subtle here. The recognizing of the mind. But, you know, we know we're going around identifying things. So getting more subtle here. But then the intention part of sankara, sure, our thoughts and emotions are really obvious, but like the intention part, teasing that out, the intention to think, okay, that's pretty subtle. The intentions behind emotion, that kind of thing. The intention, intentions to act in all kinds of ways. And then even more subtle is consciousness. To be known and seen in our awareness in a moment-to-moment way. So, of course, we cling to this quite a bit. We are very identified with the knowing capacity of our mind. Consciousness, as this fuel heap refers to, the knowing of any sense contact. There are six kinds. There is eye consciousness, ear consciousness, smell consciousness, taste consciousness, tactile consciousness of the body, and cognizing consciousness, consciousness of what's happening in the mind. Although consciousness is also happening in the mind. So, that's the thing. We can be aware of consciousness also. It's not so easy. Don't try to force yourself. Every once in a while you might check out. Oh, can I just be, be aware of this awareness for a little bit? And kind of build that capacity, that little muscle a bit. It's very, well, you check out for yourself. It's, as a relative thing, I think it's pretty neutral. It's pretty neither pleasant nor unpleasant compared with a lot of other experiences anyway, which is hard to notice actually. Things that are very, like, it's hard to notice things that are really neutral. A lot of things are subtly unpleasant or pleasant. And so it's subtle, but we can tease it out sometimes and begin to notice it as our practice unfolds over the life of our practice. It's changing all the time and it's conditioned. We are aware of different things at different times so that consciousness is arising with the sounds, the thoughts, the sights. It's changing. You can just notice in any scenario, if you're in here and you're quietly, quietly sitting, still with the breath, noticing the breath, And then suddenly, creak, the mind goes to hearing, consciousness, and then the thought, somebody's walking out of the hall. (laughs) So that's being known. And maybe the mind keeps hearing, creak, 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 and what's going on in the mind is hearing somebody out of the hall. And then the mind goes back to the breath. So there's a knowing of each of these experiences, and it's changing all the time. So somebody brought this up, actually, in a meaning. As Analio, Bhikkhu Analio says, and this is paraphrasing, consciousness is changing all the time. All the time, other would be frozen knowing one thing all the time. So our seeing and really deeply understanding the impermanence of consciousness can be a real doorway into deep letting go and an understanding that can lead to even the letting go of the fear of death or as we 
can begin to understand our experience as a human being, including the experience of being a conscious one with condition changing consciousness in a different way. So say it out Upandita in his book, A State of Mind Called Beautiful. He says, one moment of consciousness arises and it disappears right away. So death is nothing unusual. So imagine being so deeply practiced that it's just the seeing of, okay, consciousness is arising and passing all the time. Death, we're dying in each moment. This moment is dying, this moment is dying, this moment is dying, and being having that integrated in one's understanding so deeply and have, being at peace with it that there's that understanding. We can see that a natural letting go can happen for some people as they age. And I kind of want to close with talking a little bit about this. There can be a way that people start to make peace and seem to see that it's okay to let go the more that it becomes inevitable. So maybe some of that process happens for us in a way kind of naturally. It's different for different people, of course. But it can be that our aging, which we're all doing, we can think of as a sacred thing, as quite a teacher. A teacher, we can see consciousness going away. We see the body shifting and changing all the time, heading towards the moment of that Sera Upandita says is not so unusual. Maybe as we get older, we can actually see it's not unusual in a more clear way. I don't know. But I will say, part of my experience lately in practicing is seeing my father's aggregates change, because we're externally mindful, right? As mine do, of course. I see that every day in the mirror. But he's 88 now, and health is failing and getting more difficult, uh, both his cognitive health and his physical health. And I've been profoundly surprised at the equanimity that he has shown in the changes of his experience in the realms of consciousness and cognition and everything. He definitely wasn't an equanimous person for much of his life. But there's a peacefulness, an at-peaceness that he's brought to the aging process, which is, I think, a lesson. So he was a surgeon, so quite you know, involved in his intellectual life and studied a lot. And so he had that natural intellect that allowed him to be a surgeon. Pretty, pretty smart guy. Um, And now he can't remember things day to day or from the morning to the afternoon to remind him of things all the time. You know, Dad, do you remember we went to the dentist yesterday? No. But he just says it like that, no. And knowing him all his life, I thought he would be like, no, I don't remember. But he just says, no, it's okay. He realizes now, he doesn't remember that much. And he even doesn't remember in the past few months, he, he actually had a 
what's called a mild heart attack, an end-stemmy heart attack. And I knew he wasn't going to remember when we left the hospital, so I printed out the records, the, the records. And, you know, as a surgeon, he still knows what a myocardial infarction is. So I was like, here, Dad, look, you had a myocardial infarction. Because <laughs> I was trying to, wanted it to land on him because I wanted him to understand why he felt tired and how he needed to go to cardiac rehab. I said, here, I'm going to leave these notes here so you'll remember that you had a myocardial infarction. He never, he, he heard me then. He's like, oh, I had a myocardial infarction. Okay. But then, you know, the next time I'm like, okay, you know, after a while I'm like, okay, your cardiac rehab is starting now. You know, you're going to have to go. And he's like, oh, okay. Why do I, why am I going to this? <laughs> I'm like, because you had a heart attack last month, you know? And he, he said, oh, okay. <laughs> so, you know, there's a, there's a letting go that we may have to do. So let's get ready for it, you know? There's a letting go that's built in to having a body and having a mind that's made up of the body also. Um, and we can see that that's that that is really a powerful thing to have a, a mind that is willing to let go in that way of holding on to the aggregates so I thought I would close um, with just us actually I know I mentioned the five daily recollections at some point this month, but I thought I would close with us just actually pausing to take them together. Um, They're interesting in that these five daily recollections, which I'm sure many of you have heard before, they actually are a pointer, a kind of wisdom reflection around not-self and some of the truths that point to not-self. Um, you know, I'm subject to aging, I'm subject to illness, I'm subject to dying, I'm not exempt from any of these. I will be separated from everything that is near and dear to me. And I'm the owner of my actions, the heir of my actions, etc. They actually point to impermanence, the inevitable flow of our lives, and the fact that that means our experience isn't fit to be regarded as self. Ungovernability, we can't stop the aging, we can't stop the illness, we can't stop the death, we can't stop the separation. And conditionality, the last one is about conditionality. Karma, we're the heir of our actions. Can we see this in our practice, that what's arising was conditioned from past experience? And that means our practice is to influence the flow. To influence the flow, to enter into this natural process of mindfulness, the Noble Eightfold Path. So I just invite you to just kind of take these with me as I take them aloud and just pause and and reflect. And I'll read them kind of slowly and just let them wash over. I am subject to aging. I'm not exempt from aging. I am subject to illness. I'm not exempt from illness. 
I am subject to dying. I'm not exempt from death. I will be separated from everything that is near and dear to me. I am the owner of my actions, heir of my actions, born from actions. Actions are my relations. Actions are my protection. Whatever actions I do, good or bad, of these I shall become the heir. Okay, let's take the chant the sharing of blessings together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.